Last week, we left Jesus and his disciples with clean feet at an awkward dinner. And I was still listening to Spare, which was the biography of the king's youngest son, Harry. I've now finished that. I have mixed feelings, I must say. He's told his story. I have to say, it hasn't changed my life. But uh, if you've read or listened to the story, you'll understand what I mean when I say I know more about Prince Harry than I will ever need to know. It's an interesting story, but it's not exactly life-changing. This story, on the other hand, leaves me wanting to, wanting to ask so many questions. Indeed, 2,000 years and more have passed, and still people are wondering. Scholars are still writing about this man, Jesus, this, this what, this prophet, this teacher, this what, willing sacrifice, this cult leader with a death wish, this God in human form. Now, John had, as I mentioned last week, a very specific purpose in writing this gospel. He wanted people to understand that this man was the Christ, the chosen leader that Israel had been waiting for. And that by believing this, we would have life in his name. So this whole chapter, as for the whole gospel, is geared to helping us to believe that, to persuading us of that through the things that Jesus did, the things that Jesus said. Let me just catch you up if you're just coming in on this, if you're visiting this week and haven't been following along the series. Jesus has just washed his disciples' feet, a strange and confronting act of service, which is a kind of, kind of a parable of Jesus' whole mission. God come to serve humanity by taking the lowest place, humiliating himself, becoming like a servant to clean us up. And he's also instructed his disciples to do the same for each other. He started giving them parting advice, the kind of advice that you give when you're going away on a long trip where you're going to leave some people alone, leave, leave your kids alone in the house, you know, make sure you do the right things, look after each other, eat properly. It's kind of parting advice. So there's, there's a sense of there's an ending happening here. There's, he, there's some reason why he's saying these particular things. They're part of a much bigger story. It's not just about him and them. And he is part of a much bigger story. And he knows that this story includes betrayal. If, you, if, if it will be helpful for you afterwards, please don't do it now. Go back and read the whole chapter again. So we left him just having washed his disciples' feet, having put himself in this very lowly position. And just before our passage opens here, he mentions that he's going to be betrayed. And it's quite a switch, isn't it, from serving to being betrayed. Let me just read the verse to you. She says, not finding it. Sorry, just give me a moment. In verse... Uh, 18, I'll start from verse 18 of chapter 13, um, when he's just told them to wash each other's feet. I'm not referring to all of you, he says, I know those I've chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of scripture, he who shared my bread has turned against me. 
I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you'll believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. And this is where we start this week. After he'd said this, Jesus was very troubled in spirit and testified, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. So this is the leader who's just stripped, stooped, washed feet and returned to his rightful place and given them these instructions. He knows what's about to happen. And he is distressed. It says he's troubled in spirit in the text, but the, the verb that's used is terasso, which is the same, the same word that's used to describe his feelings when he comes across um, the mourning party when Lazarus has died. It's grief. He's grief-stricken. Now, the Pharisees have been threatening Jesus with death ever since he raised Lazarus. So it's perhaps to be expected that there will be some threat to his life. But for it to come from within his inner circle, that's a hard thing to take, isn't it? And so it's not surprising, really, if the thought of this makes him break down, because he is fully human, after all. He's in anguish. He's poured three years of his life into these people. They are his inner circle. How painful for him to know that betrayal will come from here so close to his heart. Don't imagine him saying these words without emotion. Our God has become human with all that that includes. If Jesus is upset, the disciples are completely thrown. They're completely at a loss. What is he talking about? One commentator, Leon Morris, points out that um, both Matthew and Mark in their descriptions of this show the disciples asking if it could be them that would be the betrayers, perhaps unintentionally. They're so confused. This is such a, a strange and confusing situation. They're at dinner with Jesus. Suddenly he strips off and he washes their feet. He tells them to do the same thing. He starts talking to them as though he's leaving. And then he says, one of you is going to betray me. And he breaks down. Everyone is completely dismayed and confused by the idea. And so, you know, they ask John. It's probably John, because John is the disciple who knows that Jesus loves him. John is the one who grasps this most firmly, and so he refers to himself in this way. Simon Peter asks John to ask Jesus, what, what is he talking about? Who's it going to be? So Jesus gives him what seems a very obvious clue, doesn't it? Some, I used to think, you know, as I grew up, and I was very fortunate to grow up in the church, so I've heard this story, as probably some of you have a few times, it's so obvious that it's Judas, isn't it? It's like those old-fashioned pantomimes I used to watch when I was a kid. I don't know if you have them in Australia, but those of you who are of English extraction will know what I'm talking about, where the villain appears behind the hero, and all the kids shout, he's behind you! Don't you want to do that? Don't you just want to go, it's Judas, grab him, it's Judas, grab him! Why can't the others see? It's so clear, isn't it? But actually, John tells us, there's nothing to see yet. 
Because as he describes it, with the benefit of hindsight, the betrayal isn't really set in motion until Jesus hands Judas the morsel of bread. You see it in verse 27. He says in 26, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread after I've dipped it in the dish. And verse 27 tells us that as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. You can imagine the ink that has been spilt over what might, that might mean. But what we do know is that it wasn't Judas's, Judas didn't actually have the actual plan to go and do this thing until Jesus handed him the bread. Jesus knows what's happening. He knows who Judas is. He knows what Judas is going to do. And still, he not only hands him the bread, but tells him to get on with it. Do it quickly, he says. Now, Judas's motives are a mystery. Many have tried to fathom them out. I would invite you to go back and listen to the sermon that Chris preached um, at the beginning of January, on the 8th of January, about the battle that we all face, where we're tempted by Satan to do things which, because of our sinful nature, we're kind of happy to go along with, and which the world will not contradict us in. We have disordered desires, which are stimulated by the things that Satan prompts us to do. Perhaps Judas is vulnerable to treachery because of his dishonest life, stealing from the common purse. Or perhaps, perhaps he's just disappointed because Jesus' ministry isn't panning out the way he had hoped. Or even some commentators, trying to find a really positive thing to say about Judas, <laughs> have suggested that maybe he thinks that turning him over to the authorities might actually be just the prompt that Jesus needs to stand up and sock it to the authorities. We will never know. And this is not really the focus of this gospel, particularly not for John. His focus, John's focus, is on who Jesus is and what Jesus does and what that shows us about who Jesus is. So we see him hand Judas the bread and tell him to do what he's going to do quickly. And these poor disciples in this weird space of clean feet and talk of treachery and all the dinner dishes around, and they, their minds just go to mundane things. They, they have no clue. It doesn't occur to them that Judas would be getting up to sell Jesus out. No one saw that coming, apart from Jesus. And we're told it's night. Cover for Judas. And maybe a metaphor for the confusion that the disciples are feeling. And then there's more confusion to come. Jesus speaks about the glorification that's coming. It's a really confusing, tangled statement. No, I'm not going to try and unpick it for you here. But it's enough for us to see that Jesus sees all that is about to happen. All that has been set in motion. And that this is all God's plan. He's not surprised. He's not shocked. Yes, he's grief-stricken. But he knows fully what's happening. 
And when he speaks of glorification, no one in that room other than him could have known that he meant crucifixion, death, burial, and then resurrection. So the disciples are there trying to figure out what on earth he's talking about. And Jesus understands that they're confused and explains that, yes, he'll, he'll be gone soon and they won't be able to follow him. Like a parent leaving children, giving them instructions, he says, look after each other while I'm gone. Love one another. This is a, a new commandment. And like the earlier one, to wash each other's feet, it's linked to what he has done for them. Love one another as I have loved you, he says. But this is beyond the obvious benefits of loving each other. It's going to do something more than following his footsteps. It's actually going to be an identifying mark of his followers. It will be a proof of them having been his students, of having been taught by him, of having spent time with him. It was to be their distinctive. And before I go on, I just want to pause here for a moment and just, just think about that with you, that loving each other the way that Jesus loved us is meant to be the distinctive mark of those who have been with Jesus, who know Jesus, who love Jesus, who believe in Jesus. And just ponder for a moment whether that is something that you would imagine people saying about you. About us as a church. Whatever happens, those Christians, they're so loving. Whatever we say about them, those Christians, they're so loving. Simon Peter, as usual, skips past all this stuff. He just cuts to the chase. Where are you going? He realizes that something is about to change. And Jesus says, where well, I'm going, you can't follow now, but you will later. Why not now? I would lay down my life for you. Really? You would lay down your life for me, Jesus says. And then he tells him the devastating truth about himself. Simon Peter was... Simon Peter was not who he thought he was. Judas was not the only betrayer in the room. John flags Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, to us several times through this chapter. But actually, he's not the only betrayer in the room. The whole room was full of betrayers of Jesus. I say this because when he's arrested later, they all scarper. Every last one of them. And Jesus knew this would happen. Earlier they were asking, Who, who's going to betray you, Jesus? And the answer is all of them were going to. Of course, only one sold him out for actual cash money. 
But the, later, the others later ran away for their own reasons, for their own safety, for their own security. And at the risk of losing all your friendships, I suggest that this room is also full of betrayers of Jesus. Because we're all capable of big betrayals like Judas, led away by our own evil desires, self-justifying, looking out for ourselves, tempted to sell out, perhaps for promotion or not to upset the wrong people. Or little betrayals, circumstantial betrayals, like Peter's, thrown into a panic by the situation and finding himself fulfilling Jesus' prophecy almost without realizing it, until the cock crowed. And he realized he did not know himself as well as Jesus did. We may compromise by staying quiet. We might just keep on distancing ourselves until we realize we're not even seen as part of the church. There are all kinds of large and small ways that we betray Jesus. And Jesus knew and still knows Jesus knew that this betrayal was part of the suffering he would need to endure from those closest to him. If we are ever let down by people close to us, we can see Jesus here going through the same thing, can't we? Jesus knew about them, and he knows about us. And he wanted to prepare his disciples. He knew that his time was short with them, he wanted to prepare them for, for betrayal, for their own failures. He wanted to prepare them to wash each other's feet, to love each other no matter what, no matter who betrayed them, upset them, disappointed them, sold them out or turned against them. And that command to love, ignored by Peter in the moment, is best not ignored by us because it's what would ultimately restore Peter, as you'll see if you fast forward to chapter 21. I said this last week, and I will keep saying it. You just need to read the whole gospel because it's extraordinary. But in chapter 21, Jesus restores Peter. Not by anything good about Peter, but by reminding him of his love for Peter. It is Jesus' proven love for us that keeps us grounded, obedient, on message, faithful. And we see Jesus' love and his willingness to serve us, to save us, despite our frailty. Jesus knew exactly where he was and that he was exactly where he was meant to be. And he knew that the failures of those around him would actually be used by God to fulfill God's purposes. Judas' failure of loyalty, Peter's denial, the ultimate running away of the disciples, all showing up Jesus' incredible loyalty, his commitment, his knowledge that his death on the cross would make a way for all of us who do fail, who do find ourselves giving way to fear or weakness to make it possible for us to ask for God's forgiveness and to receive it. So the second half of this chapter points us to Jesus' loyalty, his fidelity to us, 
his fidelity to God, his fidelity to the plan of salvation, even though he knew that his nearest and best friends would turn on him or turn away from him. Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows what we would aspire to and what we're actually capable of. What a way to end a chapter, people. What would Simon Peter be thinking at this point? I've just told Jesus I laid down my life and he's just told me I'm going to betray him. What are you thinking? What aspirations do you have? And what might the reality be? How do we respond to this level of being known? It's what we all want, isn't it? To be known, to be really known. But do we want to be really known? Jesus knows who we are, and he died for us anyway. Amen.